Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We're wrapping up another year, and I feel like maybe we could all do with a stiff drink. Or perhaps a toast. Because while it's been another long and weird and exhausting year, and it looks like it might be another long and weird and exhausting year in 2022, 2021 has also been a year filled with promise. Think about how uncertain the world looked a year ago. Today, more than 70% of the country has at least one dose of the vaccine. That's something like a miracle. So let's raise a glass to your health, and let's raise a glass to the promise of 2022. And if we're being specific about it, let's raise a glass of bourbon, the past, present, and future go-to spirit of the South. But that wasn't necessarily the case just a decade ago. High-end bourbon sat on liquor store shelves at prices so cheap they might make you gasp now. In his new book, simply and appropriately titled Bourbon, Clay Risen chronicles the history of this American whiskey, from the early days in the mountains of Kentucky to the global phenomenon that it is today. This week, he joins the Reckon interview in our final episode of the season to explain the drink's enduring appeal, offer a few pointers on how to identify a good bourbon, and a few recommendations for affordable and findable bottles that you can grab as last-minute Christmas or New Year's gifts. And so, as we close out 2021 and the fifth season of the Reckon interview, I'm raising glass to my family, including our new son, Jack, to a better South, and to you for listening to our show. Cheers. Let's get started. Clay Risen, thanks for coming on the Reckon interview. Ah, hey, thanks for having me. As you write in the preface to your new book, Bourbon, the Story of Kentucky Whiskey, not too long ago, bourbon was not in as high demand in the United States as it is right now. What sparked its resurgence? I think it wasn't one thing. It was a lot of things going on. And I think one of the one of the overarching things is just that bourbon is and brown spirits are pretty traditional in terms of you know the american palate and and what we look for and and it's more like why was there a period when we weren't drinking a lot of bourbon there was a you know about 30 years 70s the early 2000s when generally speaking vodka and white wine and so-called sort of cleaner spirits were dominant and that started to change there's Part of it's generational. You don't want to drink what your parents are drinking kind of thing. But I think one of the main things that I think really kicked it off was a renewed appreciation of craftsmanship, authenticity, local or, or native spirits. There's a real appeal and a real, the story of whiskey, as well as the, the flavor, is something that I think a lot of people just find irresistible. They're just really uh, drawn to that as, as something that is honest and true, you know, even if a lot of it ends up being marketing, there's an aspect to whiskey, uh, American whiskey, bourbon in particular, that I just think speaks to what people look for in terms of values and what they buy and consume. Yeah, I know for me, um, when I moved out to California, I had never been a big bourbon drinker, but somehow that felt like it would keep me tied to my Southern roots. At the Safeway grocery store there, you could buy a bottle of Buffalo Trace for, I think, $20 at the time. I would drink a glass of that and watch Justified every night. <laughs> so so that, that was my connection. But it does seem like a spirit that has kind of its place in the American mythology. I've uh, got the Whiskey Rebellion, of course, and late 1700s that kind of led to 
the, the constitution, but it wasn't really our, our first spirit, right? We were kind of a rum region when, when we were the new world. Yeah, well, look, I mean, when different populations, different countries from, from Europe settled uh, the East Coast, settled North America, yeah, they brought their traditions with them. And so you had Germans coming over and Scots who are and Irish who are distilling. England was much more of fortified wine country and also a country country that had developed in its British East Indies holdings, a lot of you know, rum distilling, rum industry. And as the United States was British colony, it was flooded with rum. And so that, to your point, even though there was a diversity of spirits, rum really was, uh, was a spirit that was uh, kind of the default for a lot of people. And, and then that changed when the United States was formed and when we left the confines of the British Empire and we didn't have access to cheap rum anymore. And so there were sort of, a, sort of like a forest fire that clears out all the big trees and suddenly all the little ones are able to sprout up. And so things like uh, rye whiskey in particular on the East Coast and then bourbon as, as it developed in Kentucky very quickly came to the fore and it wasn't alone. There were, there were other spirits that early on were pretty popular, a lot of fruit brandies. These are basically farm products, you know, anything, whatever you're growing on your farm, you want to find a way to extend the life of it, uh, the shelf life of it. So if it's grain, you want to find a way to increase its value and to uh, make it more portable. So in a way, whiskey is, that is simply that. It's the concentration of flavor and, and, and the, the sort of value of, of the grain into a liquid form that you can then transport and sell pretty easily. Same thing if you're growing fruits, if you're growing whatever. And uh, it was only in the 1800s that uh, a consumer focus emerged where people started to demand certain styles and certain, certain types of whiskey. Uh, and so that's where you get the emergence of uh, particularly aged whiskey, of rye on the East Coast, of bourbon in the Ohio River Valley, you know, in Kentucky. It's everything else is history. So let's start with the basics, you know, for, for people who may not know the difference between different types of whiskey. You've written books on all types of American whiskey. But what is bourbon as it compares to rye or to scotch or the Irish whiskey? There are lots of kinds of whiskey. Uh, some of them are identified with their national identity, Scotch, Irish, Japanese, Canadian. Bourbon is simply a type of whiskey. So whiskey is a grain spirit you know, derived from grain. It's essentially distilled beer that is then aged and aged in, in wooden barrels. In different countries, different styles have different rules about those barrels, but generally speaking, they're large oak barrels. Yeah, so bourbon needs to be... Uh, made with primarily corn. So it, uh, so 51% corn, usually it's, it's significantly more than that uh, with the rest of the grain being uh, rye, barley, uh, wheat, things like that. And it needs to be uh, distilled obviously, and it needs to be aged in new oak barrels. And those barrels need to be charred on the inside. So it gives it a particular flavor profile. One thing that bourbon doesn't have to be is aged in, or made in Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky would love for you to think otherwise, but it just has to be made in the United States. Now, the, the reality is uh, most of it uh, is, made in, is made in Kentucky. Uh, all the big distilleries are there, except for Jack Daniels, George Dickel, but we, you know, we sort of debate whether those are bourbon distilleries. But, but in any case, Kentucky is the heart of bourbon production. But you can make it in California. You can make it. There's some great bourbon being made in Texas. There's great bourbon here in New York. It's all over the place. 
Yeah, I, I think you wrote in the book that bourbon is now distilled in all 50 states. Is that there's at least one distillery in all 50 states? That's right. There's at least one distillery in every state. So the whiskeys that claim to be a Tennessee whiskey, like Jack Daniels, or in Alabama, there's um, Clyde Mays, which claims to be an Alabama-style whiskey. Some of that's just marketing, and, and they're probably more in the bourbon family. Well, I mean, it depends on how you... So Clyde Mays, they actually add some stuff to theirs, which would... This is sort of a sort of second-level requirement. Uh, you can't add anything to bourbon. There's no coloring. There's no flavoring added. It has to be... You can say it's you know, bourbon with such and such added, uh, but you can't just call it bourbon. So you have to call it something else. So, you know, they make their Alabama style is, I think there's some some fruit juice, some apple juice added. And it's fine. I mean, that's, you know, that's cool. That's a different style, but it's an additive to it or it's an addition to the whiskey production. Tennessee whiskey is a weird one because what they do to make Tennessee whiskey is you make, you basically make bourbon in every way that you would uh, bourbon in Kentucky, but you, before you age it, you uh, filter it through maple charcoal and uh, you let it sort of either seep through or mellow. And that, you know, has a way of signing kind of, if you can sort of imagine kind of sanding off some of the edges of the flavor, you know, so it gives Jack Daniels or George Dickel that sort of, you know, uh, their signature kind of sweet flavor, a little less harshness. There's nothing about that process that disqualifies them from being bourbon. And you could do that same thing in Kentucky and still call it bourbon. But they've chosen to say, well, no, this is, we do this extra thing and that's what makes it Tennessee whiskey. So, you know, you can, we can have, and people have this debate all the time. Well, you know, is Jack Daniels in fact a bourbon, even if they don't say they are, or does that addition give them the right to kind of stylistically, regionally define themselves. You know, I kind of go with with their qualifier. They want to call it something different. That's fine. But I think that's an important distinction to understand. What is it about Kentucky, you know, the, the region itself that made it such a natural home for bourbon, you know, going back to the 1800s, I guess? Yeah. So, you know, I think historically, one thing to remember about Kentucky is that even though it's a great place to make whiskey, the entire Ohio River Valley was a great place to make whiskey. And you had whiskey production uh, in Illinois, in Ohio, large distilleries. Some of the largest distilleries were actually around Peoria for a long time. Uh, Kentucky obviously was a centerpiece as well. I think what helped Kentucky over the long term was that it does have a pretty good climate where it's very hot in the summer, very cold in the winter. It has really good water sources, as opposed to some of the other places in the area. It sits the sort of, you know, the heart of bourbon country sits on a shelf of limestone, and that the water filters up through that, and it's particularly apt for agriculture, for horses, but also for making bourbon. It uh, is really great for distillation. You can find that sort of geologic formation other parts of the country but it's just Kentucky has that in addition to a lot of other things and it also has a really great water system so Kentucky has one of the longest this is I always find this fascinating Kentucky has one of the longest if you took up all the rivers in Kentucky it has one of the longest river systems in the country I think it might have the longest river system you know coming down from the Ohio River if you can sort of imagine the Ohio River is at the north end you know sort of defines the northern part of Kentucky, the northern border, yeah, you know, it's just like strings hanging down 
including, you know, the Cumberland is one of the big ones, the Kentucky River, but a lot of smaller rivers. And uh, what that did was make it possible for early on for farmers who wanted to sell their whiskey or, or other goods in, let's say, New Orleans, uh, it made it really easy for them to put their stuff on the river, have it taken up the Ohio River, put on flat boats, and, uh, and you know, down in the Mississippi and so on. So, uh, so there were a lot of historical uh, advantages going for Kentucky. But, you know, I mean, there's also, there's a political story. Uh, Kentucky in the 19th century was a politically very powerful state. And it lined up a lot of legislation that in the long run kind of made bourbon a, a kind of a shoe-in as a whiskey category. Uh, the Bottled and Bond Act, the Pure Food and Drug Act, these things, some things that we don't even think of as being about whiskey, the Pure Food and Drug Act had a section in it that defined what whiskey was and essentially said, you know, it has to be bourbon or it has to be, say, you know, it has rye is essentially bourbon, but it's made with rye. Uh, you know, it has to be, it has to be these standards. And by the way, some of the only places that do it this way are in Kentucky. <laughs> and, and then after Prohibition, a very similar story. Companies that were pretty well invested and had banked on the end of prohibition had gone out and consolidated struggling distilleries and bought up stocks. You know, they had a law, they had a huge incentive to lobby and to shape legislation that really had prioritized or really, um, uh, you know, advantaged Kentucky distilling. And so, you know, it's, it's a fascinating story. And it's one as someone who, uh, you know, I write political history and social cultural history, as well as about whiskey. I find this a really fascinating story because it's, you know, it's not just uh, a story about climate. It's not just a story about, um, you know, or climate in terms of growing and uh, agriculture or, you know, all the kind of natural givens. But it's very much a story of of politics and, and of culture and 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 things that uh, we don't necessarily think of when we think of a heritage product like whiskey. Well, let's talk about th that aspect of it then. You know, who was making whiskey prior to prohibition, and who was profiting off of whiskey prior to prohibition, and how did that change after prohibition? The first thing is that before prohibition, whiskey distilling was pretty widespread uh, around. You know, sort of if you drew a line from Illinois due east. So Illinois, Ohio, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and to some extent, Virginia, to some extent, New York, uh, you had lots of distilleries. And the further east you got, the more rye heavy you got. So you had a lot of rye that was grown and, and produced on the east coast. Further inland, you had you know, bourbon country, but also in Illinois and in Ohio, it was also a lot of blending, a lot of, you know, what today we would think of as kind of real mass produced, real sort of, um, most of it was safe to drink, but some of it wasn't. One of the many reasons for prohibition was that alcohol spirits are not safe. And I don't just mean they're not safe because what we understand them to be not safe today, but, you know, that they were adulterated and that you could never know what was in that bottle. Was it you know, what made it brown? Was it what they say? Was it the wood that aged it? Or are they chemicals? And so uh, there's a lot of that being made in, in, uh, in some parts sort of north of the Ohio River or the Ohio River. So, and, and there were some pretty large distilleries. There's a pretty, pretty wide variety in terms of size 
you know, some some large companies, some relatively small ones, and in a fairly dispersed industry, you know, located in small towns that would then ship their whiskey to larger facilities for distribution. And, you know, it was uh, quite a robust industry and, and a really fascinating one to learn about because, you know, all of these different places had their own styles. They had their own ticks, their little, you know, unique distinctions. Prohibition destroyed all of that. And it reduced the industry down to just a few players who were given medical distilling licenses. They were allowed to uh, not make more whiskey, but they could sell the whiskey that they had for medicinal purposes. Because at the time, there was a belief that, you know, a little whiskey would cure your cold or was uh, good for colicky babies or, you know, whatever. And, and honestly, it was a huge loophole that allowed people to sell and consume whiskey without breaking the law. But but a number of companies, uh, particularly the larger ones, some of the larger, savvier ones, said, well, prohibition's not going to last. You know, this is this will inevitably end. Too many loopholes. There's too much moonshining. There's, you know, I, there's a market. This, this, is, this will fall apart. So let's get ready for that. And let's buy up all these companies, all these brands, uh, all of their stocks, you know, all of the uh, whiskey that they have aging. Let's build our empire. And, and so that we're ready for that day when whiskey does become legal again. And sure enough, that's what happened. Uh, obviously, we know, you know in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt ended prohibition, and then we passed the 21st Amendment. What did that end up looking like? Well, it ended up looking like kind of the opposite of what the industry was beforehand. Only a few very large companies, some of them, a couple of them Canadian, most of them the United American, that owned all the production and uh, had significant control of distribution. And a few smaller players either managed to come back or stuck around. Jim Beam had been shuttered. You know, and, and Jim Beam was a, you know, he's a historical figure. He was the guy who was in charge of Jim Beam. He had gone, tried to make money as a citrus grower in Florida. It didn't work. So when Prohibition ended, he built a new distillery. The, he built the distillery and the brand that we know today as Jim Beam. And so, so he was there. Pappy Van Winkle was another one who, his distillery, uh, Stitzel Weller, opened soon after the end of Prohibition. So there were, there, were, there were some smaller players, but really it was dominated by, you know, large names making volume whiskey. You can sort of see in that post-Prohibition era, both why it took off, why whiskey took off in the post-World War II era, and then why it collapsed. You know, there just wasn't a lot of diversity. There wasn't a lot of good whiskey out there. There was a lot of kind of mediocre whiskey and then a few small distilleries that were making good stuff, but not enough to really uh, change people's minds when younger generations came along and said, yeah, we don't really want to drink that harsh brown stuff anymore. We want to drink vodka and we want to, you know, do whatever, whatever vice is, uh, is hip with, uh, with this generation. Who are some of those big players that emerged after Prohibition? You mentioned Jim Beam and Pappy Van Winkle were able to, to bounce back. Who was it that snapped up the, the smaller ones? Yeah, I mean, it's so Shenley was, and Shenley is not a company that anyone knows anymore. I mean, it doesn't exist. It ended up being, you know, consumed itself. And uh, there are still Shenley era brands that exist. And, but, you know, and Shenley owned what is now known as the Buffalo Trace Distillery, among other things. But, you know, so they're these sort of dinosaurs, national distillers, which ended up owning Jim Beam and ending up becoming, taking the name Jim Beam and then becoming what today is 
beam Suntory. But there are a lot of, you know, sort of recombinations. So it's that's another fun and, and often confusing part of the history is to go back and look at, well, who were the ones who were the big players in, you know, the 30s, 40s, and 50s? They're not the big players today, or at least they're not names that we know. Uh, Hiram Walker was another one. Hiram Walker is a Canadian company. Hiram Walker had a huge distillery in Peoria, Seagram, which, you know, again, it's, Seagram is no more. But Seagram, uh, another Canadian company, was you know one of the largest, most successful conglomerates of the 20th century. And uh, among their many holdings were, you know, Four Roses, uh, the brand and in, in, uh, the bourbon brand, uh, as well as obviously stuff like Seagram 7, you know, the in, you know, Seagram's Canadian, uh, Canadian dry ginger ale. I mean, all these things ended up going in other directions and being owned by other companies. But, uh, but Seagram was once a, a power player in bourbon. And who are the power players today? I and mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of startups and, and smaller distilleries out there, but there's also been a lot of consolidation in the industry. Yeah. So all the, you know, all the big distilleries that survived through the, the bourbon bust, of the 70s to the 2000s. You know, they're mostly still around. So you get your Brown Foreman. Brown Foreman is the parent company that owns, well, they own Jack Daniels, but they own Woodford Reserve. They own Old Forester. And these are all spirits brands that own lots of other spirits. Uh, they don't only make whiskey, but company like Beam Suntory, you know, they're best known for, well, Suntory in Japan, but in the United States for, for Jim Beam. So, uh, but they own other things, you know, they own tequila brands and they own not all, you know, a lot of them own wine brands, some of them own beer brands. Heaven Hill is another one. Uh, Heaven Hill is probably along with Jim Beam and one of the most successful sort of post prohibition startups. So Heaven Hill was purely was a new company that was built after prohibition. There was no legacy involved at all. And today Heaven Hill is, you know, depends on how you count it, uh, either Heaven Hill or Jim Beam are the largest distilleries in the in the country. Jim Beam has two facilities that add up to being bigger than Heaven Hills one, but Heaven Hills distillery, single distillery is a giant. And, you know, there are a couple of companies that we don't necessarily associate with, you know, they don't have a brand name that they're associated with, but a brand like Constellation, which is more of a, really more of a wine company historically. But in the last several years, they've been buying up beer brands and some of those smaller craft whiskeys. So when you think about consolidation, you know, the older legacy distilleries are not the ones doing the consolidation. They're generally not buying other brand, new brands. They have their own brands and they have their brand teams. They come up with new things, but they're not involved. Diageo is another one. Diageo owns Bullet and Diageo owns George Stickel. Diageo is a British company. Pernod Ricard is another one that uh, it's a French company. Uh, you know, better known for, you know, they own Jameson, they own a bunch of Scotch distilleries. But in recent years, they've been buying up a good amount of the larger, more successful craft distilleries, these players. And, and so it's, you know, the big brands are still the big names. But, you know, very quietly, you're seeing some other companies start to move in and start to build up pretty big portfolios of craft brands. So, you know, craft, even today, craft makes up 7% of the market. It's tiny compared to a relatively small number of big players. But, you know, that's twice as much as two years ago. So craft is growing rapidly. And I do think that whether it's ever as big as craft, you know, craft beer is, I think, a quarter of the beer industry now. I don't know if craft whiskey's ever going to be that size, but could be. I imagine a lot of these companies like Constellation and Pernod are, are banking on that. 
uh, banking on being able to take small brands and build them into pretty big competitors. Do you remember your first bourbon? I remember the first one that I, that's worth remembering. So, you know, I mean, was my first was probably Jim Beam, but you know, maybe not, maybe it was wild turkey. My grandfather was a big fan of Blanton's and he, uh, this is in the early 2000s and he, you know, I was over at his house once and he, uh, he wasn't actually a big whiskey fan. Uh, he mostly drank gin tonics, but he, uh, but he did like Blanton's and he said, I've got this stuff. You should try it. It's really good. It's really different from what you probably had. And you know, Blanton's is the first single barrel. Uh, it was, you know, one of the first whiskeys that was positioned as a, as something that could sit on the shelf next to a single malt, both in its packaging and its marketing and sort of the idea of the whiskey, but also the, the liquid itself. You know, that this was really special stuff that had been selected, you know, one barrel had been selected at a time to bottle. And, and that just, that blew me away, uh, both the concept that an American product, particularly an American product from, you know, Kentucky, which I grew up in Tennessee and, you know, every state likes to kind of dump on its neighboring states. And so, you know, yeah, Kentucky, what, you know, what do they have? So, so this, um, this idea that there could be this world-class bourbon was totally new to me. And then, you know, the more I explored and, you know, being in Tennessee, I was able to, you know, go up and you get up to Maker's Mark or Jim, you know, any of those distilleries within a couple hours from Nashville and, you know, really just start to explore. And this was back at a time when there was still very little interest in American whiskey. And, you know, these distilleries, a lot of them didn't even do tours. My brother and I got chased off the property at Willet because, well, they didn't have tours and, and totally fair for them to say, hey, you're not allowed here. Now, of course, Willet has this great tourism, you know, visitor program and totally different. But, but at the time it was, uh, you know, it was really kind of uh, terra incognita which was fun, which was a lot of fun to kind of just be there and exploring and learning about this stuff. So how did you turn this into something that you could get paid to do writing and and tasting and lecturing about bourbon? I was already a journalist and I was both a political journalist in my career, my sort of day job, but then also freelance journalists doing all kinds of things. You know, I do book reviews and I do some travel stuff and I just, you know, just kind of whatever I mean, one of the great things about journalism, if you're if you're lucky, is that, you know, you can kind of turn whatever you're interested in into a paying gig. You know, if you if you like music, you can find a way to get paid to write about music. And that's there's nothing better than the world than that. So, you know, I was writing some stuff. The first place I wrote for was uh, the Atlantic website. And I was I've been writing some political journalism and other you know, related things like that. And uh, my editor was, aside from being the editor, was a big food guy. We got to talking and, you know, subject of whiskey came up and he said, oh, you know, I think this th- this was like 2008, maybe. And, you know, start saying, oh, you know, American whiskey is getting big. It's, you know, people are starting to talk about it. You want to write some things. And, you know, low stakes, not uh, all low hanging fruit, you know, sort of what is bourbon kind of journalism? Uh, You know, let me tell you about Buffalo Trace, this distillery that at the time no one has heard of. Uh, And but that was fun because then it was a way for me to deepen my understanding and my knowledge of the of the category while, 
as you said, getting paid to do it. And then just one thing led to the other. You know, I started writing. I came, moved to the New York Times. I started writing for the Times, uh, started writing books, started doing tasting classes, started doing competitions. You know, these days there's more than enough work to go around and more than I can do. And there's obviously a huge fan base. And, and there are a lot of really great journalists out there doing whiskey journalism. So it's kind of fun to have been there, maybe not from the beginning, but, you know, from early on. What was the most recent bourbon you drank? Well, last night I had uh, Four Roses Small Batch Select. I mean, I love that whiskey, but it was there. So I had it. I'm trying to think what what else that I've had that's really been fun. I mean, I get a lot of samples, so I'm always kind of trying new stuff as well as, you know, maybe going back to some older stuff. I mean, one of the things that I think, so I really enjoy, there's one called uh, Blue Run that has been coming out in uh, a couple of releases. They're uh, not seasonal, but they do a couple of releases a year. And it's kind of a new model for whiskey. Um, You know, I think one of the things that we're seeing with distilling is, you know, not just new styles of whiskey, but also new styles of production. You know, I think we think most drinkers still think of whiskey distilling as whoever, whatever name is on the label, those are the people that that distilled it, that aged it. Uh, and by and large, that's, that's true. If you buy Wild Turkey, Wild Turkey made that whiskey. Uh, if you buy Jim Beam, Jim Beam made that whiskey. But there are other brands where, you know, that's starting to break up. And sometimes... That's for because uh, it's cheaper to do it that way. And you know, it doesn't actually reflect anything on the quality uh, or anything positively. But, but then you have this category uh, or subcategory, which I think Blue Run is one of, where they contract with fantastic independent distiller. Uh, in this case, an individual, uh, Jim Rutledge, who used to be the distiller at Four Roses. And they hire him to either oversee production or actually to do the production at a leased facility. So they'll lease space at another distillery and he'll go and make it for them. So it's sort of, you know, there's the model of uh, nomad brewing, right? Where independent brewer will go around and make batches of different. So it's, it's sort of like that. And, and that's, that's really cool, right? So then what you're selling is not, hey, we made this whiskey. It's we got Jim Rutledge to make this whiskey and here's what's cool about it but you're buying uh if you you know if you're geeky about it uh you know jim rutledge and you know you're buying you you want something jim rutledge made because jim rutledge is is a is a genius and a legend and that's that's pretty cool i mean you know there's uh, there's some of that winemaking and and you know this is one model among many that i think we're going to see more and more of going forward. And it's, it's, it's cool. I I like that. I like, I like that, you know, innovation happens at many different levels, only some of which are immediately obvious to the consumer. Coming up after the break, Clay Risen shares a few findable, affordable bottles of bourbon this holiday season, as well as his approach to tasting new bourbons. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. A few days before Christmas, a couple weeks before New Year's, if anybody's scrambling to get a last minute Christmas gift for somebody or a bottle to take to a New Year's Eve party, what are five of your favorite affordable and findable bourbons? Affordable and findable bourbons. Well, you know, 
uh, the these days, the findable part is is getting tough. I mean, whiskeys that a year or two ago I would have recommended is really no problem to find, getting harder to do. So with the caveat that I'm leaning heavily on the findable part while still trying to get the fun and not too expensive part as well. I mean, my go-to bourbon is uh, is always Russell's Reserve. I think that it's a brand that is, it's made by Wild Turkey. It's the Jimmy and Eddie Russell are the master distillers at, at Wild Turkey, father and son team. But they make this really just fantastic lower proof or lower alcohol content, really balanced, really cocktail-friendly, sippable brand called Russell's. There's a rye version. There's a bourbon version. They have different, the kind of standard is a 10 year old and it's affordable and easy to find and fantastic. I will always endorse that. Another one that, you know, is usually you're able to find it is I like old granddad 114. You know, it's, it's again, it's a probably a brand that people have seen around and maybe passed up on because it's, you know, called old granddad, but uh, the 114 especially is is delicious. So it's 114 proof. So that's, uh, you know, 57% alcohol. So it's, it packs a punch, but it's, it's fantastic, especially in the winter. It's a really great sip. Eagle Rare is another one from Buffalo Trace. It's getting harder to find Eagle Rare, but you can still find it. And as far as Buffalo Trace says, it is, they changed the packaging a little bit, but it's a 10 year old single barrel. Uh, so, you know, pretty good. Pretty good standards are pretty, pretty high bar uh, right there. It's just a really nice, uh, round, approachable whiskey. Anything from Michter's, I would recommend. Uh, their basic Michter's small batch, Michter's American whiskey. Those are great. They get really expensive. Michter's make some of the most expensive whiskey in America, but their basic stuff is, is really good. And then, you know, and then to round it out, I like Old Forester. They do a, a hundred proof, so fifty percent alcohol version of Old Forester. It's sweet and and relatively smooth, and you know I think it gets overlooked sometimes, just because Brown Foreman makes a lot of other stuff. They make Woodford, they make uh, they make Jack Daniels, but Old Forester is a really really solid whiskey, and and again one that you can find pretty easily. Uh, they also have a great downtown location. Uh, as does Michter's. So if you're ever in Louisville uh, and you don't want to go out to a distillery, uh, right there on main, on the uh, main drag, uh, you'll find both of them. They're sort of downtown outlets and they're super fun. They both have bars. They both have tours. They both have working distilleries, like micro distilleries within, within the facility. And you can just have a good time. So that doesn't necessarily speak to the quality of the whiskey, but the whiskey happens to be really good. To wrap up, when you are trying a new whiskey, you know, this may be hard to convey over audio, but how do you go about tasting it? How do you recommend that, that listeners try new whiskeys? I, I try not to beat people over the head with the right way to drink whiskey, right? There's no right way. It's, it's whatever works for you. And, but I do have my own way. And uh, especially if I'm really taking, uh, you know, sort of squaring up with a whiskey, I want to know about this whiskey. I'm tasting it in an event or for a book, you know, I'll nose it and nose it. And my joke is always that uh, you want to approach a new whiskey like you do a dog you don't know. You got to be careful, might bite your, you know, and you don't want to stick your nose right in, uh, right in its face or it'll bite it off. Uh, you want to kind of start six inches away and just kind of bring the whiskey closer to you, find your sweet spot. Different people have different sensitivities, but different whiskeys have different, you know, volatilities. And some of them are really... Uh, aggressive on the nose. Others are pretty shy, but find that place. 
and and spend some time on the nose. You know, the nose is really important, not only in and of itself as a quality, but also to give you hints about the flavor. You know, that's going to be a big part of that experience. So assess it. You know, what do you think it tastes? What do you think it smells like? And then then when you taste it, uh, I sort of break down tasting into three parts. And the first is, you know, what does it taste like right as it hits your lips, uh, that kind of entry? And then you want to let it sit in your mouth for a little while and really kind of swirl it around and give it some room in your mouth. Uh, you end up looking kind of silly when you do, but you want to give it some room to start, honestly, to start to evaporate. Uh, you want to uh, allow that alcohol, those higher alcohols to start to evaporate because that will change the flavor of the, the whiskey will literally start to change in your mouth and that changes the flavor. And then, uh, then when you swallow it, you want to let it hit the back of your mouth, obviously hit the back of your taste buds and, and think about what it tastes like as it's going down your throat. And then when it's gone, you know, does it have a finish? Does it not have a finish? Is it, is it quick? Is it dry? Is it sweet, bitter? What are the, what are the elements that, that it leaves behind? And, and then to take all of that and kind of come up with kind of a, you know, an overall synthesis, you know, this is, this is a dry, a dry whiskey with, uh, you know, a lot of tannins on the back end and, you know, really almost come up with a story about, well, what is this, you know, individual notes? What kind of, what do they tell me about what the whiskey is overall? You know, if I had to say in a sentence or in a phrase, what is this whiskey? How would I convey that? And how would I do it without jargon? You know, I'd say, yeah, it's kind of dry. It's kind of, you know, it's got some bitterness. It's got some chocolate in there. That's, I think, the bulk of it. The only other thing I'd say is to take time with it. You know, a whiskey, even more than like a wine or a beer, you know, whiskey is a rough and tumble thing to put in your mouth. And, you know, you're going to want to, you're going to want to maybe take a couple of sips. You're going to want to kind of get acclimated, particularly to a new whiskey. Uh, and then, and then kind of see from there what you think. And if you have to go back to it a few times, sometimes I'll go back to a whiskey later in the day or, or the next day. My palate, like everyone's palates, changes depending on what I've had to eat, what I'm feeling like, what the weather's like. And, you know, I want to find out, well, you know, I thought that whiskey was X, Y, and Z. Is it, is it still or now do I think is an A, B, or C? And, and what do I do about that if it is? So anyway, there's always a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, you know, sort of moving parts in there, a lot of complexities. But the point is that you, know, you want to come up with a way to kind of systematically think about what you're drinking instead of just jumping in and sort of trying to make order out of chaos. You know, you want to figure out starting what's the game plan. Again, that's just me. Other people do with it what you will. Uh, it's your whiskey and uh, no one should tell you how you should drink it. Well, Clay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about, I feel like I should have been drinking during this conversation, but uh, maybe next time. <laughs> uh, no, it's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Clay Risen for his time. You can find his book, Bourbon, at www.clayrisen.com, at your local bookstore, or at bookstores online. Seriously, I cannot thank you enough for including The Reckon Interview in your weekly lineup of podcasts this year. I know there are millions of shows out there, and I'm honored that you even set aside one minute to listen to this show. You can help us grow the show in the new year by sharing it with your friends and your family. The bigger audience we get, the more we can start to roll out new things like live episodes, in-person events, Reckon Interview book clubs, and more. 
If you want to stay in touch between seasons, sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Conversation, at reckonsouth.com slash newsletters. Or find me on Twitter at, at John Hammontree and let me know which episodes resonated with you and who you'd like to hear from in future seasons. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the wonderful folks over at Edit Audio. And until next year, thanks for reckoning with me.